Hi, I'm Sydney. And I'm Viv. Welcome to Sprout, a podcast about finding your place in the world and growing an impactful career. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Sproutcast. So women just make up 7% of global fintech founders, according to Deloitte. Now, women also make up 1% of total fintech VC funding. In this episode, we chat to Jill about her experiences being in this group. Jill Berry is the CEO and co-founder of AdaTree, an Australian financial technology company at the forefront of open banking. We chat about her experiences of being the only woman in the room, her view on taking risks, and her learnings on leadership. As a disclaimer, this conversation does not refer to any scientific studies and is built on stories of personal experience. If you haven't already, make sure you join the Sproutcast community on Facebook, where we talk about personal growth and building impactful careers. And if you enjoy this episode, please, please help us by thinking of just one friend to share it with. We hope you enjoy the episode. Sydney and I sure found this inspiring. Hi, Jill. Welcome to our show. Hey, Sydney. Hey, Viv. Thanks for having me. Um, We're super excited to have this conversation today. So to get us started, we like to ask our guests an icebreaker question. What's something that's made you smile this week? Ooh, something that's made me smile this week. Um, (laughs) I would say professionally, um, we had a a really big company, so that they're going to go with us. So that's always exciting. We've also won two awards this week, so it's been really positive. Um, But just in general, every day, um, my golden retriever puppy... Roxy, she like she's just so cute, and she just makes me smile all the time, even if she's up to mischief. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like such an exciting week, and congratulations on your awards. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, tell us more about what you do, Jill. Yeah, so I'm CEO and co-founder of AdaTree. So we're a regulated B two B data sharing company. So ultimately, um, working on the strategy, regulation, um, the product roadmap, and just working with our, our clients, just a whole lot of aspects of, uh, of running a small regulated B2B tech business. So I have a whole lot of fun, and my background is product development. So I'm comfortable with a lot of uncertainty and in managing through that. So I feel like that's a bit about what I do. I'm a problem solver. <laughs> That's really cool. Um, and just to clarify, what's a regulated B2B open banking business? Uh, yes. Uh, so in in Australia, there's, um, there's a new regulated data sharing regime. It's called consumer data right. And yeah, so with the consumer data right, um, you, you, like companies can receive data um, if they if they're regulated. Um, so if they want to say like have a faster loan application or have you know financial count, uh, counseling that are that's automated or switching as a service for different type of products or services, they want to access data. Um, turns out it's actually really really hard to access this data with like the security profiles and. Um, and just keeping up with these constantly changing standards. So we're an intermediary. We're essentially an abstraction layer for companies who want to access the data. So instead of building and constantly keeping up, they just connect to us and in a few hours they get access to the data. So the same way that if you want to build a, a presentation, you license PowerPoint. Um, if now with if you want to access regulated data, um, then you would use AdaTree. What kind of data is this? Um, would you have any examples of the type of data this is involved in? 
Yeah, yeah. So we actually connect to ninety six percent of uh, of Australian um, banks and credit unions, credit cards. Um, it should be a hundred percent pretty soon. But it's basically customer data, product data, accounts, um, and full transaction data. But it's it's incredibly regulated about what you can access and why you can access it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so consumers now, they have to consent um, for their data to be shared with a specific company and for a specific purpose as well. So it really just gives consumers the right to digitally transfer their data and you know to, to different companies. And ultimately, what I think is cool about it is that when you're done with it, you can say, yeah, cool. Thanks for that service. I want you to delete my data now. And they have to. Mm. Interesting. Right. Yeah, that's really exciting. And I think so important that as a consumer, you also have um, right and power and ownership of your data. Um, what's the story that led you to decide to work on this? What was the problem that you saw in the system before? Yeah, so I never planned on starting a company, <laughs> like despite um, like my master's studying like strategy and entrepreneurship. It was just never on the plans. Um, so my background is product development. And since 2015, I've actually helped to build two new banks in Australia. So Tyro and Volt. Um, so we are, at, I was at Volt with, um, with Shane, my co-founder, and he's just like a technical unicorn of a person. <laughs> and so we were, we were looking at this new regulation called consumer data, right? And we're like, wow, this is really cool. It's not just banking, but it's economy wide. So it's going to be energy, telco, insurance, loyalty. Um, and there's so many interesting use cases of what you can actually do with this data and just so you can um, increase competition and lead to just better consumer outcomes. So we're like, this is really cool, that re- um, regulation. But it's really, really hard. We looked at the standards to participate. And we're like, it's kind of copied and pasted from building a bank, which is what we're good at together. And there's no solution in market. And we were just really passionate about it. So it was just market timing, brand new reg- uh, regulation, um, and just kind of like a vision for what it could really be. So we just decided to, um, to essentially quit our jobs, take a risk, and we're like, let's build the platform that we would want to use. So companies can just focus on services using data, not about actually how to get it. Mm. Yeah. Being this sort of middleman and working with so many big banks, um, how do you like, when you first start, how do you even approach talking to all these big institutions to work with you? So that's a big question, right? Because how, like, that's like, the, I would say the one of the biggest challenges, um, not just for us, but for any, any company who is just like a startup in a B2B tech, Yeah, talking to enterprises. Um, I think that ultimately, especially because we hadn't done a capital raise yet, um, and you know, we, we really didn't have, have the brand, but we, but we, what we did have was experience and just deep knowledge. So saying that, you know, saying that we we had worked on, you know, building two banks that, that shows that you can really get, get stuff done. You're used to building in heavily regulated environments. It's the CDR is very regulated. Um, but I think it's also just jumping in and understanding all of the, the legislation, so it's, it's incredibly like a very, very niche topic and it goes very deep. So we just, I would literally get so excited about, it sounds like the most geeky thing. Um, I was on a, I was on a plane from like Boston to, uh, to Sydney mm-hmm. and most of the time people just watch movies and sleep the whole time. 
And then there was this new legislation came out. So I ended up printing um, about like 250-ish <laughs> pages of legislation. And I just got a highlighter and a notebook. And I read through everything, just being like, I get it all. And now, like, that was like the inspiration for like my roadmap and like how everything was really going to fit together. I don't think that many people have actually done that. And I could probably like actually just like quote so many parts of it. Um, so I think that just... Um, instead of just saying, oh, this is what I want to do, we just started building it and just being like, we are experts in this. We will always be experts in this and, and just talking about it that way and just, um, signing or finding some early adopters. Um, our first customer was a company called Verifier and they're still our customer. They just got accredited, um, and use us. But yeah, I think it's just like finding that, like those first companies to, um, to, to work with you two and a half years later. And now, now we have some pretty big, you know, listed customers, um, or companies as, as customers as well. But I think it's just really hard getting those first contracts signed. Luckily, we, we had, we had, you know, the regulatory experience, but also just that experience of, of just being like, all right, we're like, we're, we're the pioneers for this. We have the first solution. You can actually use it today. And no one else actually really had that. So I, so it showed like our ability to execute, but our deep knowledge for that too. But it wasn't easy at all. <laughs> and most, yeah. And you know, you'd get so many like shut doors in your face, but you know, it's kind of, it's kind of like if you need inspiration as, as a founder, mm-hmm. like externally, then you shouldn't be doing it. So we were just, we just had such a strong belief in what we were doing. We we're like, that's fine. We just have to find the early adopters. Right. That's awesome. And um, you reading all those papers on the plane gave me such a law student moment. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's what law students do. Um, but yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, Jill, you mentioned that being a founder, um, you face many challenges. And I'm sure especially in such a heavily regulated industry like fintech, would love to go a little bit deeper into this. What do you, What have you found to be um, the most challenging aspects of being a founder or like key highlights and lowlights of your experience? Ooh, we could talk for hours on that. <laughs> um, I would say some, some of the some of the key challenges, it's, it's really what I just talked about, just honestly getting mm. started. Um, going from zero to one is really, really big. And most of the time people are experienced with, you know, saying, oh, I work in a hundred year old company. I have existing products and I just kind of enhance them and go through the process. Whether you're, when you're starting absolutely everything from scratch, that's when it's really, really difficult. It's establishing a brand. It's doing a website. It's figuring out finance and funding and build and customers and regulation and really everything possible. So it's like wearing every hat at once. Um, I think that that was, that was the, the hardest part. And it, it's, it's not like your challenges go away. You just have different challenges. So the challenges that we're facing right now are in a growth business. Um, just, you know, just having contracts signed and, you know, and, and looking at, you know, competition, trying to copy and, and catch up and thinking about how we can actually go ahead, um, you know, and still have our first mover advantage. I think that, so those are, those are some of the big, you know, challenges that we, we had really just getting started, but I don't think it gets any easier. It just mm-hmm. gets different <laughs> now, but as we have, you know, like revenue and funding, um, now that of course you just have a whole lot more resources to actually help you mm-hmm. with it. 
Um, but yeah, so I would say highlights and lowlights. Um, highlights, I remember just being so excited when we, you know, when we signed our first client and getting some of like that validation. Um, I care less about, about awards. That's more like, like, you know, more in like extrinsic Mm -hmm. motivation type thing. But I really, really care about whenever we get a new client signed, um, you know, like ultimately we help them solve problems. And I just see it as a gateway of them bringing like better, you know, consumer services to market, and, and we accelerate that. So, um, but I think that one really big highlight for me is when we signed um, actually Australia's largest bank fintech partnership. So we ended up tw- signing 28 banks yeah. um, in about six weeks. Mm-hmm. So that was, um, a, that's that's absolutely unheard of in a, basically a procurement. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, that, that was, that was really, that was really interesting for, for sure. I, I didn't expect to ever sign that many banks. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, but it was, it wasn't just like we targeted a group. We just talked to one and then they told some and then they told some and they told some. So it's pretty perfect that that was just word of mouth because it really just shows that we're fair to work with. We know what we're doing and we just help them. That's a, that was a really big, um, highlight for me, but it also reflected two years of work before that. It was, you know, by far not an, not an overnight success. It was just like grueling years of work. And that's how we could do that. Mm-hmm. Word of mouth is so powerful. And it really shows that you've kind of got a really good product of people willing to share it with their friends and everyone they know. So that's really exciting to hear. Yeah, I, I like to think that um, I would much rather have that happen than just spend a whole lot on Google. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so recently I read an article that women only make up 7% of the global fintech founder community. So I was wondering what your experience has been like as a female founder in fintech. Yeah, um, it is interesting. Even just like being at like a fintech holiday party, mm. you can look around, you know, like there's a lot of guys. Here. Yeah. Like, like one that I was at a few, like, um, a few weeks ago, there was, um, I think like besides like the like the females that worked at that company, it was me and one other, and they probably would have been at least fifty guys. Wow! Oh wow! So that's like that's pretty significant. I yeah. would say like you notice that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's it's really different, and I mean obviously I I took the leap and decided to you know to to start a fintech, but we, I get a lot of questions from you know whether it's people I know or I'm connected to. Um, who want to get into fintech. And I think that it, it honestly comes down to, this is my personal mm. view, that it really comes down to risk appetite, mm-hmm. where females are, are just like, oh, I would love to join a startup, but I really like the, you know, I, I, uh, maybe I'd rather be at a scale up um, and, and learn then, just because it has to do with um, uh, a bit more like stability, security of the business as well. And that, oh, maybe I'll join your startup at Series B. It's like, that's actually not a startup. That's a scale up. And they're like, what you would learn at Series B for a scale up is totally different. Like you've missed the whole, like, let's start something <laughs> phase. But, uh, I think that like, at least for like, this is only reflecting on like people who have approached me. And like proactively and just being like, I, I, I love it when people are proactive. I'm pretty proactive myself. And if someone just, you know, gets in touch with me and say, Hey, this is what I'm actually good at. This is why I'm interested in your company. I think I'd like to join. And 
And, and that's really powerful. Um, so females will say that and they'll just say, oh, I'd like to maybe join in a few years. Or can I, you know, can I get paid by full market rate? Like I want mm. the benefits of being in a really big corporate, but I want to be in a startup as well. Um, whereas guys will often, you know, still be proactive and they'll say, yeah, like, you know, I, I, I'll take, I'll take a pay cut, um, for my big corporate job and then, you know, re- reward me in shares. I like, I want to be on this journey, um, as well. So it's, it's weird that there's like a gender bias for it, but I've seen it just because of over the years, who's, who's approached me and, or who's been willing to jump or not. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and previously I've interned at Stone and Chalk in Sydney, which is also like another fintech incubator. And I think it's definitely something I've noticed as well. Um, like just like the ratio of, um, men and women. Do you think it's something unique to the fintech industry particularly, or do you think that's something that applies across the startup world? That, that that is interesting. I I don't know about the startup world. At least like I read a whole lot of you know startup news, and it's often you know like more like guys in black t shirts um, <laughs> that, that are that are featured. Um, but I think it's more of a reflection of financial services mm. in in general. Like so often people go from banking or payments or something like that into into fintech. Yeah. Um, so it's, that's that's their background. So I think it reflects that industry. But the EY um, FinTech Australia census um, that just came out maybe a month or two ago, it, it really showed that there's an increase um, in the number of female, like um, not necessarily founders, but well, founders and leadership. So that's that is on the rise. So while that's really positive, um, it's still not, you know, anywhere near the, the male leadership for the, or the male founders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of the risk appetite that you brought up and like the lack of women just wanting to, I guess, take big risks to found stuff and like work in a startup early stage. Do you think that's something um, people are born with or do you think that's more of a learned thing? Um, I think that it is absolutely learned. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think that it's learned, but it also has to do with like your your period of like where you are mm-hmm. in life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that your age is actually really important because you know, especially if you had, I don't know, if I had three kids and a mortgage, I'd probably be less inclined to um, to start something, honestly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, so I think that it is definitely learned because I've had some wonderful friends that I've met through work, but also through my social networks that, that have done that as well. And I do think that having, even just having these, these awards and just so you can, so you can see other examples of, you know, like, like of people who have tried hard and, you know, and just, and just learned and actually done it as well. So like one of my friends, you know, he was, he founded Waddle, um, you know, they just got acquired by Zero um, about a year ago. Uh, one of my friends was the founder of Zuper, a fintech company. Another friend um, started this like really interesting investment company. And since I talked to them and learned about like their their journey, their experiences, their struggles, their highs and lows, um, it's it's a bit more normalized yeah. actually. Just to be because on paper you'd be like, wow, find it, founding a company, geez, that is. That is so hard. Where do you even start? Like you can study everything possible, at, you know, in entre- entrepreneurship, but you're not going to learn how mm-hmm. to do that. Right. Um, but having those friends, especially that I could see from them, but also so many friends that I know that I could call and be like, Hey, um, how do I do this? 
And since they've done it before, it made it a lot easier and a whole lot less daunting. It's still daunting. It is still hard, but having those people that I can call up um, that that I you know have known for a while and trust, um, but also since starting A to Tree, I've met so many wonderful founders that aren't you know that and now I can talk to you openly about that type of stuff. Be like, oh, that's what I'm going through right now. How did you deal with this? And having that that trust and and network really. Yeah. That's good advice. Um, having people around you who you can just like call up and ask those questions. Um, Joe, on the point about credibility that we were talking about earlier, do you th- like? I think yes, it's important to know yourself, and experience helps you build that credibility. But do you think there's also uh, another portion that's I don't want to say artificial credibility, but in terms of like your confidence, how you conduct yourself, and um, just more the like appearance side of things. Do you have any thoughts for how to get people to take you seriously? Absolutely. I think so much of it is confidence and attitude. Um, In Australia, I think it is a fair amount of, of networks Mm. as well. Um, Considering I didn't grow up here, I didn't have, you know, that would just be like, oh, they're, they're my neighbors or, oh, my dad can introduce (laughs) me to them. I think it's like, like, I had to make my own networks, yeah. but, you know, just doing so by being like really genuine, thoughtful and smart and just pretty good to work with. Um, but I don't know, kind of like on the, on the confidence side of it, when my swim coaches, um, like growing up told me, um, that you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And if you think about everything that is going wrong or everything you don't know, you'll never get started. So, but if you just think, well, I always think about what I'm good at, what I'm not good at, how I can supplement what I'm not good at with other, um, whether resources or friends or, you know, just, just professional contacts, um, around me realizing you're not going to do everything right. But just thinking about, um, how, like I, I like to approach it that way. There's going to be so much uncertainty. There's going to be a lot of things that you're uncomfortable with, but it's how do you deal with that? And especially deal with it really gracefully. Yeah. I don't know. Like, also growing up is, is told, you know, don't do anything that you wouldn't want on the front page of the paper. Mm-hmm. So just acting with, like, that integrity, I think is just incredibly important, too. So that's part of the values of, of our company. So I think that that's how – I'd like to think that people can kind of see that in, in how we operate as a business and, and even how I lead as a company as well. So I think that that's, good. that's kind of like the unofficial – credibility stuff that I think is, is important. Yeah, that's great advice. If you had to think back to some of the people that you've worked with, um, was there anyone that you thought like, oh, this person doesn't seem very credible? Um, what do you think makes that non-credible person stand out compared to someone that you have really like strong initial impressions of? I think that... Um... Well, so actually, we, when we talked about values, um, about what we wanted to be um, at a, as a company, we still up, uphold those. Um, we talked about leaders and people that we've worked with and worked for mm. that have been fantastic, that we absolutely admire. And we want to just be like, oh, how they acted. We want to take that on board. But we also talked about people that we didn't like because, you know, they, they'd have, they might have burned us or just acted in unethical or just like an unprofessional way or just ways that we just didn't admire. 
So we actually talked about those behaviors and we say, you know, this is what we want to be, but this is actively what we want to avoid. Um, you know, so even things like being super political, managing up, not managing down, um, you know, just like not being transparent, being manipulative, those type of things that that's, that is just like in a total, um, deal breaker. And we even talk about that for, um, in interviews and, you know, like you can be absolutely brilliant at what you do, but if you're a brilliant jerk, no one wants to work with you. So true. So I think that those are type, the type of things that we talk about for our culture, but it's being like, how can we take the best of what we've learned and who we've worked with and put that in our company and look at some of the traits of other people that say maybe we didn't mesh so well with and how can we avoid those type of behaviors? So that's my PC of way of, of, of answering yeah. that. <laughs> I was going to say, that'd be a really good exercise for our listeners as well. Like just take a piece of paper, jot down people you really admire, people that you don't like, and try to write down those traits. Yeah, but th- th- then it's also much harder to be like, okay, cool, if you don't like that, how do you screen for that? Mm. If that happens, what do you do? True. So like we literally even just say like, these are the behaviors. If you do this, like, you know, you, you shouldn't be a part of the company anymore. And it's not just people who report to me, but it's more like if I were to even do that, where would we draw the line? Mm-hmm. Mm, that's a really good point. Corny, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, I think, I think it's just good just to talk about appropriate behaviors. Um, but, you know, so then it's more transparent, just better as a, as a, as a company, but also, you know, em- employees. I remember even talking about being like, oh, like there's, Sometimes you have meetings in, um, or decisions in meetings and discussions in meetings, but we always hated it when there was clearly a discussion and an unofficial decisioning before the meeting. And then the meeting was just the formality. We're like, no, those type of things, not, not okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. As, as a leader, have you ever found, um, come across challenges where people, um, maybe like disagreed with some of the, I don't know, I like the initiatives that you're trying to implement, such as those about the values and the behaviors. Um, I would say for values and behaviors, um, I would say probably, probably, probably not. Um, just because I don't know. I think that we're, we're not really looking for external acceptance. Mm-hmm. So I recently heard on a podcast, um, I think it was called Sisterhood Works or something, but it was saying that there are certain traits which tend to be masculine traits that women don't tend to embody and that majorly affects um, if we steer into leadership positions or not. Um, I was wondering what you think about these and like if your experience as a female CEO leader is any different to a male CEO leader or do you think that's just something that everyone can do? Um, I personally think that it's every that it's more about like the, the everything um, is I've never just been like, okay, how can I, how can I like, you know, act more, ask more, act more masculine as a, as a leader. Of course, I think that we just have our values. I have a certain way of doing things. People might agree. People might like disagree, but I think it's more about like the, like the risk taking um, and integrity, like type of views and how we, how we really balance that. Um, I think guys do like, you know, it's, it's always noted that guys will ask for a raise. Guys will, um, apply for a role that 
you know, they, if there's, you know, if there's 10 requirements, they might meet five and be like, yeah, I can learn that. And a female might meet nine. They're like, oh, I don't, I don't meet all of them. So I think that there's like those gender characteristics, but in terms of leadership, you know, there's so many different types of leaders. Um, and I think that like, I just more follow like my values. And again, like just going back to who are the leaders that I, I admire that like, I want to really embody them. Um, they might be female, they might be male. Um, yeah, that doesn't really, um, matter to me, but I'm sure that there's a whole lot of studies on, um, <laughs> like the, the, the types of, um, uh, like behaviors, um, and traits that, that really get you to the top. And I think it's probably quite different for the ones that just be like, Oh, let's quit, take a risk and start something brand new versus ones that just like climb up the corporate ranks mm-hmm. of something really established as well. Yeah. And who are the leaders you admire, Jill? Hmm. Um, I absolutely admire, um, two from, two from Tyro. So, um, Yas Stolman, um, who is like the, the CEO for about 11, 12 years. Um, and then actually one of my investors, um, Peter Haig, he's the, um, he's a co-founder of, um, Tyro Payments, um, and then worked there for, for ages. So he was like the product and engineering visionary. And he taught me so many things about product development, like, um, you know, like how to do a smoke test or just some really interesting experiments. Um, I still, you know, talk to, talk to Peter all the time. Um, about Ada Tree and products and and all that stuff and uh, he yeah he's um yeah he's like a leader that I would want to be like absolutely I mean Yost and Peter they they're miles apart so different but they're both fantastic um, and then um, someone that I actually just called my Australian dad when I was at AMP Bank um, he was my manager's manager um, he was the COO of the bank and he's now the group CEO of um, RIC WA um, so I. Rob is an absolute mentor um, to me. And, you know, he's one of the people that I can call and just being like, this is happening. What do I do? Or how have you done this before? Okay, can you give me advice on on those type of things? So I think that they're, and, and, and Rob is just an incredibly smart, smart person that is, um, that it, he just gets so much done, but people absolutely adore him um, as, as a leader. Mm-hmm. So, like, I would say that he was probably, like, one of my, like, top inspirations for, for, for leaders, for sure. That's awesome. And, yeah, so important to surround yourself with leaders and mentors that you admire. And I think it's really cool that you're able to um, also, like, I guess engage with the people that you admire. I think as a young person, often you feel, like, scared to talk to the people that you admire. But, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it's just taking about like that, that risk as well. So, um, one example of it when we were probably like three months in, two months in, maybe starting Ada Tree, um, uh, I went to the Tyro AGM because since I had, um, shares there, um, as, you know, as, as a former employee. And then so I went to the AGM and, um, Carrie Roxburgh, who was our chair for 12 ish years, um, he was stepping down and, I had worked with Carrie when building out like the loan product and like the basic bank licensing. Um, and he was someone who's just, he's just so, so smart and he was stepping down his chair. And then, so 
I, I was like, you know, I could have walked away or I could have just gone and talked to him and gotten in line of all the people who wanted to talk with him. So I ended up talking with him, just being like, hey, I, I don't know if you remember me, but, you know, like, you know, we worked together on loan stuff. He said he did. And I was like, I know that you're retiring from, you know, from, or you've stepping down from being the board here. Um, and, and I'm starting a new, you know, regulated data sharing company. So if you want to, you know, be involved in any way in what's going to be the next new fintech in town, I would love to have you involved. But, you know, if you just want to, you know, go, <laughs> go play tennis and do what normal people do, like, you know, like, you know, no, no hard feelings. And then he was like, yeah, let's meet up tomorrow. Um, and then, so it was, it was just like taking that, you know, cause I was yeah. like nervous to, to go up there, even though I'd talked to Carrie before. So like, you don't get what you don't ask for and you don't know what people, you know, what people want to do or help you. Um, so Carrie ended up being an investor. Um, so it's really true. If you ask for money, you get help. If you ask for help, you get money. Mm. <laughs> Carrie. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, but, but Carrie is again, really, really helpful. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. Um, that's such a great point. Like you don't get what you don't ask for. And I think so often um, we just don't ask, but yeah, sometimes it's, if you just ask, you might get what you want. That's a great point. Yeah, absolutely. Or you just don't even know where it's going to yeah. lead. Um, I just think about, you know, like what's the risk of asking? Someone says mm-hmm. no. Okay. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. So to wrap up, um, Jill, we like to ask our guests at the end of every episode, what has been your biggest sprout or growth moment? And this can be any moment in your life. It doesn't have to do with Ada Tree. I would say probably in 2012-ish when I was at A&P Bank. I'd been, I think I'd been there for about a year and I really started to realize like, uh, organically just about how to, how to build the product and do everything from scratch. So I was, um, portfolio manager for institutional corporate and consumer deposits, um, there, um, essentially the product manager there. And there was a really big, um, like regulatory change coming up and, um, that's the theme of a whole lot of what I do. Um, and I was just like, wow. And I'm like, there's this huge gap in the market about like all these really, really big institutions wanting to place cash. But now all these other banks are, um, they're closing down the products and then they need to put, put their cash somewhere. Um, so I was like, can I build a non-basic deposit product, um, for them to, to put it in? And, and then they're like, yeah, sure. They're, <laughs> and they're like, you don't have a budget. Um, they're like, you have, like, you have like a budget of zero. So figure it out, you know from legal and tech and literally everything of what to do. But they're like, yeah, you can spend 80, 80% of your time on it um, and and just figure it out. So then um, I actually had a, a graduate reporting to me as well. So um, her and I figured out everything. What's a basic deposit product or what's a non-basic deposit product? Um, how do you write a PDS? What's the difference between a PDS and terms and conditions? Um, everything about, you know, how can we work with the core banking platform? Oh, if we don't have budget for um, the changes, how can we do this purely in configuration? If we don't have um, budget for, for someone else to make training for the call center and operations, oh, guess we're going to write those guides ourselves. Let's work with marketing. Let's, you know, let's work on everything, everything end to end. 
Um, turns out that's, you know, human-centered design and even for distribution. Oh, let's talk to the brokers. Let's do training for them. Um, so that was a really big eye-opening moment where I just saw a problem. Um, actually, Rob um, was the one who was like, yeah, you can do this. Just go do it yourself. Um, I, that was a big opportunity that I saw. And I took it and ran. I was like, do you know what? I don't know what to do, but I'm smart enough to figure it out. I have people around me I can ask. And then we ended up executing on it. And so with no budget, um, it basically, I think it turned into like the, the largest, um, deposit product, like portfolio wise within a year with no marketing. Wow. That's awesome. That's so, cool. so it's called the AMP notice account. But yeah, so that, I would say that that was a big one. That's why I was like, do you know what? I can build stuff. Yeah, and I think that also ties in everything you were saying before about risk appetite because I feel like some people in that situation would have been like, oh, I don't want to act stupid or look stupid by not knowing anything. But it's really important to just like say yes if you feel like it will be a great opportunity. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. So yeah, I would say that would be my biggest growth moment. Awesome. Thanks for coming on our show, Jill. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a really fun chat. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And follow us on Instagram or LinkedIn at The Sproutcast.